believe. I was meeting with my primary care physician a number of years ago, and this was right after Super Bowl 49. So I'll apologize to all the Seahawks fans who might be listening. And he has, and he's a Patriots fan, so he has, you know, all of these things all over his office. And one of them is obviously the picture of the catch of Malcolm Butler doing the interception. And he points at Malcolm Butler and he says, who put Malcolm Butler there? He said, it's the coach, the coaches who said whatever they needed to say to make sure that he'd be in that spot at the right time. And I'm your coach. And my job is to put you in the right place at the right time. This is my physician, remember? And he looks at me and he says, and, and Alan, this is going to hurt when I say it to you. He said, do you want to dance at your daughter's wedding? And do you want to hold your grandkids? Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, president and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Andy Ellis, operating partner at YL Ventures, former guest of the show more than once, and author of a new book, more importantly, called 1% Leadership, Master the Small Daily Improvements That Set Great Leaders Apart. We're talking today about his book because it's an awesome book. Now, it's got a bunch of chapters, 54 in total, uh, so there's no way we're going to be able to review them all. So instead, what we did is I picked out some of my favorite topics, ones that I found to be intriguing, ones that resonated with me, ones I wanted to learn more about, and I'm going to get Andy to expand upon them. So Andy, thank you so much for coming back to the ranch. Thanks for having me down to the ranch, Alan. I always appreciate it. All right, we will dive right in. I'm going to start with chapter one, obvious starting point for every book, chapter one, go figure. But uh, you, you, you titled this one, Personal Improvement is a Prerequisite to Leading Professionally. I, I love that. It's, it, what a great starting position is, hey, know thyself, improve thyself if you're going to run around trying to lead others. Uh, talk to me about your take on that. Yeah. So actually, first, I want to comment that chapter zero should be the obvious starting point, which is the introduction is actually sets, sets the stage for a bunch of the changes that people want to go through. Um, so don't skip it. But talking about this one. So you know, big challenges, a lot of people will, as leaders, or it really is authorities, because we often confuse authority with leadership. And we should recognize that everybody is a leader. But some people have this imprimatur of authority. And along the way, they like hear some new thing. And they're like, Oh, this is the greatest leadership fad, I'm going to tell everybody to do it. But they never actually try it themselves. And so there's this inauthenticity, because they don't have language of somebody who does it. It would be like me trying to teach you how to play lacrosse. I have never played lacrosse. So I'd be like, go out there and beat people with sticks. And maybe that's a part of the game. But you're going to sit here going, Andy, that that's not coaching. Yeah. So if and, you want to And see, I think actually they're told not to hit each other with the sticks. Well, it depends on whether they're hickory or aluminum, I think, is about <laughs> the, the difference there. So if, if you want to lead professionally, and I don't just mean as an authority, but you want to have influence on the people around you. True leadership. Then you need to be focused on your own personal improvement. And not just as an individual, but as a leader, whether it's a team or organizational, is how are you getting better every single day? I like that. I like that a lot. And and to me, you know, to your earlier point, leadership, it's not just the person with the title. It's not just the person with the authority who is the leader. Leadership to me is an ephemeral thing that can kind of drift around the room, right? 
um, at any given point in time, somebody's exhibiting good leadership, somebody's exhibiting bad leadership, good followership, bad followership. Like it's all there. And followership to me is a very real thing. It's a skill set that has to be mastered just as well as leadership does. Yeah. I like to look at it in the context of work. And I say work, whether you're being employed or it's a nonprofit or family, work is just the conversion of energy into value, right? You're, people are spending energy and they're hopefully getting some value out of that energy. Leadership is just optimizing that transaction. And so when, when people talk about leadership versus followership, like really what followership often is, is like, don't throw yourself into the way of that transaction. Like, even if it's not an optimal transaction right now, you can make it a lot worse. And so be really careful that that bad followership is really bad leadership in a sense. Right, right. That's perfect. That's perfect. All right, let's skip ahead a few chapters. Uh, again, there's 54, so I can't do them all. I really, I wish we could just sit down and do all 54, but we'd have a four-hour-long podcast, I, I'm afraid. All right, chapter six, gift kindness where it isn't expected. Now, this one really resonated me. I'm going to share a little story about my personal life a little bit here. Uh, I have a policy with my wife that flowers are not to be purchased whenever I'm in trouble, which I think is the standard husband move. You get in trouble, you come home with flowers. Rather, flowers are purchased arbitrarily and for no reason and on a semi-frequent basis, right? And I bring my daughter in on this even, and I've taught her every now and again, we get mom flowers just because she's awesome. And she'll go to the store with me and we'll pick out flowers. We'll bring them home. My wife is always surprised. It's always a nice thing for her. Um, there's a lot of variables to that, right? Um, if you only buy the flowers when you're in trouble, flowers become associated with sort of a negative connotation. Ultimately, they, they lose their luster. And the random acts of kindness are something that everybody appreciates. You know, you ha it happens to be the day you had a bad day and, hey, flowers. Or it happens to be the day you had a good day and, hey, flowers made it an even better day. So how does all this same kind of philosophy, that, that, that random acts of kindness, how does that apply to leadership? So when you're in an environment where you're leading people, you have a lot of interactions where you can just be a little kind in that interaction. And now some of that should just be routine. You should always be nice in how you deliver things. But sometimes you're going to get to surprise people. Like you take their side in an argument rather than your own, right? It's, it's unnecessary. You could have let them speak up for themselves, but you did it. You let them feel like there was an ally for that moment in the room. And it's that moment of surprise that's what makes kindness beautiful and really improves everybody's energy. Like, wow, somebody's got my back. Now, you'd like them to feel like you always have their back. And so sometimes you do it a little bit more and you do it by surprise because once it becomes a duty, if you always do it like the flowers, if you brought home flowers every single day, your wife's not surprised, there's no kindness to it. And the day you forget becomes noticeable like you failed at a duty. And so you should have duty. And I'm not saying you don't want to have these duties around you know, things that are kind and add more beauty and gentleness and, and raise people's spirits. But you also want to just take the opportunities to do something surprising and unusual. So I would occasionally like just stop and buy donuts on the way into work. And it's like, boom, here are donuts. Why? Because I felt like it. Right, right, right. The random surprise bit. And, it, you know, it, it, that, that, that sense of letting down a duty versus the randomly providing, you know, the randomly taking away perspective. There was some advice I got years and years and years ago. Um, if you're ever in a pay situation where you've got a stock paycheck plus a bonus or plus a commission or plus a uh, whatever it might be. Uh, I had a boss years and years and years ago. I thought this was the coolest thing. I would have never thought of this. He said, always make sure that that comes in two separate payments. Don't let them lump it together in one check because 
your baseline, your expectation, your duty is that base salary. You don't want to start relying on that bonus as just being part and parcel every month. You want to see it stand out on its own. And that way, if it ever does go away, it's like, oh, it was just the bonus that went away, not my expectation of a higher amount of money went away, right? Yeah, I could see that. I think bonuses, you run into a really weird thing because they're expected in a lot of places. Now, one thing I would I used to do is I think the rule at Akamai was like you couldn't get a pay raise if you had been around for like the, less than three months by the end of the year. And when we, if we hired people in the last six months, what we actually did was we would bake the next year's pay raise into their base pay. So we just said, look, you're, you're not eligible for one, even though the company will tell you you are. We're actually just baking in the, the adjustment so that you have that as a, as a higher base. And by the way, it gives me more money to play with. And then what we would often do, if somebody was a really stellar performer, we would just give them this like token. Oh, here's $1,000 a year more. And because it came out of nowhere, they were right. like, wow, Again. this is amazing. Random like, surprise. Random surprise, made them happy. It was unnecessary because we'd already told them, like, you know, we've baked in your your raise, and we just gave you an extra $1,000. I love it. I love that. That's Yeah, it's that same principle. Like, keep those things separate so it doesn't become expected run rate, right? All right, Chapter 8, an uncompelled apology unburdens everyone. Um, this is one of my favorite leadership maxims, personally, this idea that, as the leader, like like I, I've said this before on the show, one of my favorite things to do as a leader is screw up. Your first screw up is that moment when you get to demonstrate to the entire community how screw ups are dealt with, how they're addressed, what their implications and impact are. And the first thing I do is I take ownership. The second thing I do is apologize. And the third thing I do is put my plan forward to ensure that said mistake never occurs again. And if I'm leading that way, in theory... My team is modeling my behavior, and 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 they're and they're exercising the exact same. So, uh, what's your take on that one? So this is one where this is like a foundational skill, and there's like four chapters later in the book that all build on the concept of the apology, from the personal to the team to the organizational apology. And here's the real key thing: is there is some friction, whether it's you screwed up or nobody screwed up. But what the apology does is it acknowledges and gives everybody this opportunity to move on, to say, hey, something happened. Nobody's looking for blame. Alan took all the blame. He said he's at, at fault. And you might be sitting there going, it was really my fault. But thanks, Alan, for having my back. But now nobody's waiting for the shoe to drop. And you, you just get to move on. And you get closure. Right. And the people who did blame you get to say, Alan accepted it was his fault. And so he's not going to try to hide from this for the next five years. No, he took ownership. He's moved on. We get to move on and let's all move forward. And so that's the burden you're really getting rid of is that, that social tension of somebody feels that somebody has screwed up and they're waiting for the shoe to drop. You just dropped the shoe. Let's move on. Right, exactly. I, I control the shoe um, and and it's done. Look at it. It hit the floor, everyone. Let's all take a photo of the shoe on the floor. Yep. I love that. I love that a lot. It's um, also really empowering. Like, yes, I have all the power. I'm the person to blame here. And like, once I accept it, everybody feels like they're dogpiling. Whereas if they're trying to convince me it's my fault, then I'm taking, oh, it's not my fault. They get to just pile on. And I'm like, yep, totally my fault. Here's what I did wrong. Here's what our systems could have done better. What are you going to say at that point? Yeah. I, I had a screw up just this week and uh, a teammate, um, 
said to me afterwards, because I, I did the full ownership thing I always do. It's like, this this was probably all me, guys. I'm so sorry. And he said to me afterwards, you took more ownership even than probably was called for, but you took it really, really well, and it shut down the situation. Everyone's cool now. Like, we moved on. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that was the final comment. Yeah. And an important piece of this is to recognize that in complex systems, human error is the symptom of a system in need of redesign. And so the apology lets you get to the redesign of the system sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, that's, yes, at the end of the day, everything's a system. Sometimes systems glitch. And we always want to look at the system, observe the system, look at the operating rules and assumptions and alter them so said glitch doesn't occur again. That's it. It's really nothing more than that. And that's the human side of it. That's the business process side of it. That's the actual, you know, technology part of it. Like it's it's all, to me, that's all one blend. That at the end of the day, that's all we're trying to do is fix things so they go better next time. That's it. All right. Chapter 13. Uh, and this one really resonated with me because I suck at this. Um, your wellness is one of the greatest assets you control. My wellness consists of working 60 and 80 hour weeks, grinding myself into the earth, waking up Monday morning <laughs> strung out and caffeinated to an excessive degree. Uh, that's my take on wellness. And obviously that's not a good take on wellness. Um, nope. And that's something I should really be working on. So help me with this one, Andy. Chapter 13, how do I, how do I better manage that one? So first of all, you got to believe like you have to actually believe that this is true. And I don't think right now you believe it's true. Probably not. Right. If, cause if you believe this was true, you'd be like, Oh, working 60, 80 hours. Am I actually as productive in those hours as I could be? Because I don't have the level of fitness that I need to do that. Right. That you don't have the energy levels you ought to have. And so you've got to believe it there. But I'll tell you the really the moment that caused me to believe I was meeting with my primary care physician a number of years ago. And this was right after Super Bowl 49. So I'll apologize to all the Seahawks fans who might be listening. And he has and he's a Patriots fan. So he has, you know, all of these things all over his office. And one of them is obviously the picture of the catch of Malcolm Butler doing the interception. And he points at Malcolm Butler. And he says, who put Malcolm Butler there? He said, it's the coach, the coaches who said whatever they needed to say to make sure that he'd be in that spot at the right time. And I'm your coach. And my job is to put you in the right place at the right time. This is my physician, remember? And he looks at me and he says, and, and Alan, this is going to hurt when I say it to you. He said, do you want to dance at your daughter's wedding? And do you want to hold your grandkids? Mm. Yeah. Right. And you hear that, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, like my wellness is a personal asset too. Like this is my retirement asset is my wellness. So that's one piece of it. It's, it's your retirement asset. But if we go back to work as the conversion of energy into value, your wellness is the source of your energy. And so if you want to produce more value, you've got to be invested in your wellness so that you have the energy to produce value. 40 hours of great work is better than 60 hours of shitty work. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's, it's that's that fair. simple. So you got to figure out now that and now if you, if you believe you've got that motivation, then you say, what's my 1% better tomorrow? Like, I'm not asking you to like figure out a 40 hour a week workout regimen and figure it out. But what are you doing tomorrow that is more wellness than you've, you're doing today? Is it that you're going for a walk? Is it that you're going to ride on the bike? Is it that you're going to do a 10-minute workout? 
Because honestly, a 10-minute workout every day, if you're doing zero, will do wonders for you. Yeah, it's way better than zero for sure. Yeah, and and I uh, true true confessions. Last week, I met with a nutritionist. Um, Excellent. Part of what I've been doing wrong is uh, with the work schedule I've set for myself. Uh, sometimes I'll go until two p.m. to eat, and then all of a sudden I eat way too much, and I'm you know, and then I'm full for dinner, and then I like I, I can I can throw my entire eating schedule off with with the workaholic lifestyle on a on a regular basis. Yeah, and I so suffer I'm from eating with her. too much as well when I get hungry, and so I yeah. have learned to portion food before I start eating. There you go. And, and, like, and what the rest what of this girl's got me doing is uh, like a regimen of small snacks, small meal, small snacks, small meal throughout the day to keep the blood sugar levels consistent. And and to your little like just start with 10 minutes thing, my first step for this week is just make sure I have that snack in the morning. Just start there. Just do that. Start the day with the small snack to start the right process. Even if you screw up the rest of it, at least you did that part. And then, and then next week I'll, I'll pile on the next thing. And, you know, so it's kind of this slow and steady progress she's got me going on. And I was, I was super grateful that she wasn't trying to get me to change my entire lifestyle overnight. Let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer? And remove friction between your security and dev teams? Well, Daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover, reduce, and fix security issues. Lightning fast. Daz prioritizes alerts, shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. Yeah, no, you're not going to, but you can just do one thing. And look, and I know you're rehabbing your foot, so maybe you're going to focus on some upper body and some core workouts, but you're not trying to like run yourself to exhaustion. Just like do like five minutes a day and just say, hey, I'm going to do obliques today. I'm going to do whatever it is. If you can get a personal trainer or look, if you've got Apple Plus or Peloton, they've all got these like five minute workouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's perfect. So once you've gotten that wellness under control, you've 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 recalibrated your own energy output into your model of, uh, you know, converting energy to uh, value, right? Work is energy going to value, and 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 in theory, this this helps calibrate that whole process as well, right? Exactly, right. So you're you're really trying to make sure like how you've got the energy, and now we've covered all your favorite chapters in personal leadership. Take care of yourself. Now let's talk yeah. about team leadership. Yep. Yep. All right. So chapter 24. I love this one. This is such a compelling statement. I'm going to, I'm going to read this one with some drama. People need to see versions of themselves to feel welcome. All right. Elaborate on that one. I got to hear this one. So this is when people talk about representation. Like this is what it is, is if you walk into an environment and you're the only person who fill in the blank, right? That is stress. That's energy that you're wasting. Just asking the question, do I belong? I'll give you an example. This is a fun one. Uh, last weekend, I went to a Taylor Swift concert. I was oh, the chauffeur. Let me tell you, I look around the, the entire stadium, and I didn't belong. <laughs> right? I mean, there's basically 1% of the stadium is male. Fortunately, they all look like me. We're all, it's all girl dads. Right. So that's basically who's in the stadium at the same time. So at least, hey, that was a version of myself that I could I could connect with. Uh, very awkward when we went into the restrooms because all of the restrooms became women's restrooms, whether they were labeled that way or not. 
Um, but that's what you get. Like now imagine somebody who comes into an environment and they're the only person of color, right? They're always going to ask like, what did the last person of color know that I haven't learned yet? Like they, they will, will not feel welcome. And it's, and it's not just about your skin color. It's about your behaviors. Like if you're the only person who likes soccer and everybody else likes football, that's tension. And so you really want to figure out like, how do you manage this? And then how do you make sure that those people are seen? So when you're interviewing for people, let's say that you have a team that's 10% women, then you should make sure that you always have a woman on the interview panel. Because otherwise, a woman who comes in is like, oh, I'm being interviewed by six men. Boom. I don't feel welcome. Right? That might be the difference between moving from 10% to 11%. I love now, it. Now, as part of that, you need to understand that you're now asking women to do more work interviewing people than you're asking men to do. Because it might be that you know each woman is doing three times as many interviews than any man is doing. So take that into account when you're allocating job and you're saying, oh, who performed well? Well, maybe this person didn't get as much of their day job done, but they got a lot more done on helping you build an organization. So make sure that was part of their MBOs. Yeah, measure, measure those discrepancies and disparities right. for sure. But at the end of the day, if, there's an, if you look around and you don't see people that you have anything in common with, you just don't feel welcome in a space. And that's energy that you spend just existing. Yep. Years and years and years ago, I worked at a law firm and the running joke was that there was a secret rule. And the reality was it wasn't a joke and it really was an unspoken rule. Every partner in that law firm was a scuba diver. Oh, yeah. Every single one of them. And it was really funny how the non-scuba diving potential partners never made the cut. Right. Um, because it, they didn't it, get it was social an exposure. Rule. They didn't, right? There's Routine so dive trips things. for the firm and da 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 right. da so you look around and you're like, oh, everybody who's above me does X. I don't do X. Therefore, I will never get promoted. Like that's real. And that will cause you to check out, spend less energy, produce less value, bad leadership. Yep. And and bad, you know, bad for the organization because you lose on diversity. You lose on all those valuable things. If If everyone you have is the same, like I always tell people, you know, when we talk about the diversity conversation, um, one of the biggest mistakes people can make is is – abusing the concept of cultural fit, right? I'm a middle-aged white guy who I'm making stuff up because this isn't necessarily me, but I'm a middle-aged white guy who happens to love the Dallas Cowboys and golfing on the weekends. And I own a Weber barbecue grill. Now, some of that's true. Some of that's not, but imagine that I'm interviewing candidates and a candidate comes through and that candidate happens to be a middle-aged white guy who loves the Dallas Cowboys, goes golfing on the weekend and has a Weber barbecue grill. We're going to hit it off. We're going to share stories. We're going to bond. And after that experience, I'm going to say, oh, he was a great cultural fit because we connected more easily, because we had a quicker rapport. Because, and, and it's not because he's a better cultural fit. It's because of the happenstance of commonality. And every time I say cultural fit is the dictating factor and that's the person we hire, I'm actually making the problem worse with each iteration. Right. And the reality is that you actually just don't understand what cultural fit is in that context. Personal fit is not cultural fit. Like, what is the culture that you want to create? Because culture is what you celebrate and what you tolerate. Yep, yep. And so it is reasonable to say, hey, here's the things we celebrate and here's what we tolerate as an organization. And we want people who will fit that. But you have to design for it. And, and I like them is almost never cultural fit. 
Right, but but it gets abused and gets seen oh, that absolutely. way. absolutely. All the time you hear that phrase used, and I always question whenever anyone says cultural fit, I'm like, what do they really mean when they say that? Because oftentimes we got along great. That's not cultural fit. That's, no. You can have a whole no. team that gets along great, but but they're not tying into what you need them to tie into in terms of the fabric of the organization itself or the fabric of the team you're trying to build or whatever it might be. I've got a, a company I'm partnering with, um, and one of the reasons I selected and chose them was I got a really good feel early on in my interactions that these guys are ethical, mm-hmm. that they have ownership, that they have integrity, and and all the things that I value. To me, the culture is based on the values, and yes. this was a firm that I recognized shares the same values I share. I was late for a meeting, took total ownership. They messed up a, a delivery on a thing, took total ownership. Uh, we've talked about the business transaction and the actual commercial pieces of it. I don't want to burn you. I don't want to get burned. Like, let's talk. And and everything's transparent. Everything's on the table. It's just, it's refreshing to work with people who share the values I share. And values is not the same thing as I've got a Weber grill, you know? No, no. Values, values are the trail markers that keep us from taking the wrong paths. There you go. That's a great way to put it. I mean, it's also, I think, the title of uh, chapter 41 or 42. But Okay, there we go. <laughs> I'm Andy's cheating. Got his book. Andy's got his book memorized. All right, before we get to the 40s, let's talk about chapter 35. Um, in general, be vague. And, and let me share why I love this one. One of my tenets of leadership is hire people that are better at what they do than you are and get out of their way. And for me, if I'm going to be overly prescriptive, I'm going to hamstring the fact that they're better than me. Hey, person who's better at what you do than I am, do it my dumb way is what I'm really saying. And if I'm vague and just say these are the results I'm looking for, they're off to the races doing it the better way because that's why I hired them. What's what's your take on this be vague? I'm sure it has other applicability in other areas as well. I mean, you mostly just nailed it, but it's figure out what matters when you're done. That's what you, you're specific about. And everything else, like let your people go do it because here's the way you should look at it. Let's imagine you run a 100 person organization. If you're going to tell everybody how to do everything, what you really are is a one person organization that just has 100 extra bodies that probably aren't doing very much because they don't dare do anything without you. Because they know if they do it a different way, then you're going to specify they're going to get told to redo it. So like, don't bother doing it in the first place. If instead, you're just like, here's where we're going. Here's what it needs to be. When I was a cadet in the Air Force, um, when I was in ROTC, they gave us this example. They said, imagine that you are told to go rate, put up a new flagpole. Like, how do you do it? And the canonical correct answer for a cadet is you say, you find a sergeant and you say, sergeant, we need a flagpole put up by Monday. And you walk away. Right? They will go do it. You got done what needed to be done. Now, I love this one. It's very ironic. Because I went into the Air Force, I went into a squadron that was 50% officers, highly unusual. There were more second lieutenants than any other rank. And we were a brand new squadron and we needed a flagpole. So they assigned it to the second lieutenants and said, you are all responsible for putting up the flagpole. And I'm sitting here going, literally, I was trained to not do this job. <laughs> right, literally. So, so I'm going to give away uh, some of my nerdhood here. Um, I'm a big fan of the Dune series of books, and I remember way back reading Dune, and uh, the father uh, is teaching Paul Atreides leadership. And one of his tenets was, if you ever give a specific order on a specific topic, you will forever 
be giving orders on that specific topic. And this resonates with exactly what you said, this idea that once you tell somebody, here's how you start the lawnmower, they're going to always check in on here's how to start the lawnmower rather than just go starting the lawnmower, right? Like you've obligated yourself as the leader to speak to that level of specificity in that particular realm in perpetuity. So be very cautious. Every time you give a direct and specific order, understand you've now told the folks that are following you, I own this space, not you. And and therefore you look to me to, to you know? Yeah, I want to caution just a little bit on that because we should be careful about saying, look, when you are you know a senior authority in an organization, then you really do want to be very hands off on specifics. Yes, yes. But for many people, like when you are leading, you need to recognize exactly how much specificity someone needs. Fair enough. Because hands-off management with somebody who doesn't know how to do it. Like if I go tell my teenager who's never mowed the lawn and we don't own a lawnmower, I just bought a lawnmower. I say like, just go do this. Like, actually I have one teenager who'd be fine. They would read the manual. They would get it all working. Fantastic. I have another teenager who would basically throw up their hands and be like, I can't do this. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Sometimes that level of specificity is required. Yeah. Understand how much specificity is required, but do recognize that hopefully you hired people who are good at doing a job. And the better they are doing a job, the more unspecificity they actually need to thrive. Right, right. And this this is this is where the the degree of specificity is is totally intermeshed with the hiring strategy, which is its own. And I know you've got, you've got chapters on that as well. Um, but I tell you what, we're kind of at the end of the chapters I wanted to cover in specific. These are the ones that really jumped out to me. And again, folks, there are 54 chapters plus the introduction. So 54 plus one. And um, that's really what I wanted to cover today. I, it's your book. I know you've got other highlights you'd love to give. What are, what are your final thoughts, Andy? Oh, so I, I've got a lot of, I could highlight almost every chapter. Um, I have two that I really do love to highlight that if people didn't even bother reading the book because they're like, eh, not my thing, at least walk away with these two chapters. Okay. So one of them is serenity is accepting that the crap you're wading through is crap you chose to wade through. Oh, Yes. And oh, especially yes. in our career field, like we have chosen a career field that is full of crap. Like there is stressors everywhere and some of them are in your control and some are not. Learn to just accept them and be like, yep, not my problem. We borrow stress that we don't need to, especially as people get more and more senior in the security career field. Oh, yeah. CISOs are, are constantly onboarding stress. They don't need to be onboarding. Right. So don't. Like, accept that sometimes, yep, that's just the stress I'm in. I was talking with the CISO, you know, just an hour ago, who's in a job that's like, well, I'm not sure how long I'm going to stay here. This company is awful. And I'm like, well, every day that you stay, you chose to stay. So don't stress about the fact that you're there. Stress about other things. So take that one. And then the the second one, which is around inclusion, because we talked a little about representation. And here's what I want people to remember, which is inclusion is just reducing the energy cost that people are paying to exist in a space. Oh, that's lovely. And so that's what you should focus on. Like people talk about D, E, and I, and I think they really get the measurements before the core. And this is just the core, which is how do you make it that people are not wasting the energy that should be producing value, and instead they're using it to produce value. And so there's, there's a bunch of lessons around that. And then obviously, when you get to the end of the book, you got a lot on organizational leadership, we didn't touch heavily on that. So I look, I love the book, labor of love, short chapters, easy to read. I have a newsletter that's also short things that come out uh, every week. It's on Substack. 
It is the Duha One, D-U-H-A-O-N-E, Substack. I love it. I love it. And and yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the buffet style myself. Obviously, I kind of picked through my chapters that just, hey, this jumped out at me and here's a cool short read. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer that books need to be buffet style. I think in today's uh, world, expecting somebody, you know, it's like, why, why do we now have streaming services with individual MP3s? Back in the day, you had to listen to the whole album, even if there were three songs that sucked. It was a hassle to go lift the needle and skip the one song. And, you know, it's like nowadays you can buffet style it and pick what really works for you and not. And I think I think acknowledging that in literature and, and writing your book that way is a tip of the hat to the way people expect to consume information these days. And it, it's a marvel to me that not all books are written this way. Well, I think a lot of books are really one tweet expanded into 300 words or 300 pages. So it's really hard to write them this way. I tried to do the opposite. So every chapter starts with the tweet and ends with the tweet. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Keep it short. Keep it sweet. Keep it simple. Uh, and then and then ADD folks like me can ingest it. <laughs> All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming back to the ranch. Uh, this is Andy Ellis, author of 1% Leadership, Master the Small Daily Improvements That Set Great Leaders Apart. Uh, it's a great book. Go get it, folks. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying my copy, as are all my friends. Um, it's it's This has proven to be a very popular book in the community. Thanks again, Andy. Thanks, Alan. All right. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.